Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Hello, everybody. We have a wonderful show today. We are really excited about our two guests. I'm Omar. And I'm Nadja. Today, we're going to kick us off with Dr. Andrew Hamilton, who is Associate Vice Provost for Student Success and Dean of Undergraduate Studies at UNC Greensboro. He previously served as Associate Dean for Student Success in the College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of Houston and Associate Dean for Student Success in the Honors College and Executive Director for Academic Innovation at Houston. Dr. Hamilton, who was first-generation college student, holds a BA from Berea College, an MA from Boston College, and a PhD from the University of California, San Diego. He's trained in the philosophy of science, and I was really fortunate to have been part of the process in his search to bring somebody to our campus who could really fit the bill. And in some ways, we could not have had a better person chosen for the position of Associate Vice Provost for Student Success and Dean of Undergraduate Students than Andrew, given the current tumult and the challenges that we face in terms of students learning, but student success overall. So we're thrilled and we want to kick us off with a conversation with him and then we'll bring in James Stevens who Nadja is going to introduce in a little bit. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dean Ali. Thanks, everybody. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this. It's great to have you. Well, you know, we sort of started the conversation in the class that you came to guest lecture in that Naj and I teach called How Do We Know What We Know? Epistemology, Methodology, Interdisciplinary Research. I think I left out something in there. I think there's power in there too. One of those really long academic titles. You gave a wonderful presentation that really, I think the students were super excited about. And we were really happy to hear that you had time in your schedule to join us today. So you're facing probably one of the biggest challenges in your own career in dealing with issues of student success. And I know how passionate you are about seeing all of our students succeed. You have a personal story that I think speaks to this issue. Could you tell us a little bit about your own journey in becoming who you are? You were very intentional in becoming what you are now in terms of overseeing student success at UNC Greensboro. Yeah, I'm glad it seems that way. It didn't feel that way at all at the time. (laughs) As I think is often the case with those of us who go to college, not really knowing where the edges of the horizon are and not really knowing what we're capable of or good at or what kinds of things agree with us. So I went to college, as you mentioned, I was the first in my family to do so. And I went to a place where they knew how to direct students like me toward good outcomes, probably about which more later, we'll we'll probably get into talking about that. But I was a, a professor of biology and philosophy in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State in the mid 2000 aughts. 
and had a big couple of moments during that time. One of them was I was nominated for kind of a big deal teaching award. And as a result of filling out the paperwork for that award, I saw for the first time what academics call DFW rates, rates of non-completion or subpar completion of my intro biology course. And I'm pretty sure that was the first time I'd seen those numbers. It's a giant class. I had about 850 students at the time just in that one class. So when students withdrew or stopped coming or abandoned the course, it was pretty hard to notice and they just would evaporate from the course roster. But after the fact, I saw what was going on. And when I realized what the rates of non-completion were, I was shocked unpleasantly. And then when I dug into the data, I further realized that there were important challenges there because it wasn't the case that just everybody was dropping or not completing at the same rate. It was exactly the students that we now, that I now know to be worried about. So for me and my professional training up to that point, having finished a doctorate at UC San Diego, and then I did a postdoc at uh, University of California, Davis, and both of those experiences were terrifically rewarding, especially for a kid that grew up the way I grew up. But they didn't prepare me to be worried about what was happening with undergraduates. And I was kind of blissfully unaware that, you know, essentially half of the students that go to four-year schools in America never complete. And that there's these vast differences between students with resources and students with cultural and social and economic backgrounds that put them at an advantage when it comes to going to school and completing. So I kind of remember looking at, I'm a data guy. So I remember sitting in my office in the back of my lab there and realizing what was going on and my part in it and thinking, I got to do something differently. And I used to ride a bike. So the on the cycling, on the bike ride home, which was a couple of miles, I basically vowed to spend my career fixing public higher education. So at that point, I think it's fair to say I got intentional about it. Have you fixed it? <laughs> that was back when I was young and naive. And now I'm old and naive. Some things are better than they used to be by a lot. I don't think that's polyandrew of me to say. The mere fact that there are positions like the one I currently hold, and they're now, I mean, in 2005 or six or seven, when I was really beginning to dig into the literature on why some students succeed and others don't, there weren't associate vice provosts for student success uh, pretty much anywhere. And it was largely taken to be business as usual that there were failures to complete courses of 50, 60, 70% in hard classes. And those kinds of outcomes are getting harder and harder to defend almost by the day because of what they mean in pushing students away from completion and toward lives that are not as rich intellectually and economically as they would be if we could protect those students a little bit longer and get them over the hump. Andrew, I love what you're saying there. And I asked that question somewhat with tongue in cheek, but I'm thinking about having spent almost 20 years in higher education myself and how it's not as if these problems haven't been there the entire time, but it really seems that our awareness and the conversation about them has really been elevated and elevated in almost an exponential way uh, in terms of the awareness of the fact that we as teachers and as educators in higher education have a responsibility to do more than come into the classroom and provide content to the students. <laughs> so I'm really excited to know that that's what you're doing. And, and I think it is changing. Oh, I think it's changing too. And I think exponential is the right way to describe it. You know, some of these changes that have dawned on us in the academy a little bit late, perhaps, have shown themselves in other parts of American life. And so, you know, in 1974, Five, something like 10 or 12% of Americans had bachelor's degrees and now we're a little north of 30%. When you look 
at who goes to school, that's changed massively. When you look at the proportion of high school graduates that go to school, that's changed massively. I mean, we had a nearly 40% increase in college enrollment in the decade that began in 1999. So what's happened is who goes to school is really different. What they want from school is really different than a generation ago or even 10 years ago. And we've strong data on this. We know what students want. And because they tell us if we ask them, they're not coming at college in the way that we did or that some of our parents did. They're looking at college as a way to make their families proud, to build a better life for their families. I mean, there's very little talk among college students, at least at first, when they first arrive, about the kind of things that some of us think you know, college is classically about, you know, exploring the self, coming to know one's interest, developing knowledge and skills and things we're interested in. That's just not how most freshmen talk these days. And I'll hasten to point out that nearly all of that growth in enrollment in, in higher education has happened at public institutions, which is why I have kind of a special passion for public institutions. I mean, there aren't more students at Harvard now than there were 20 years ago. They've done a pretty good job of keeping that commodity rare. Meanwhile, state schools and especially minority serving institutions by some metrics have really been over backwards to accommodate the societal pressure and the economic facts that if you're going to aspire to the middle class, you're going to need a bachelor's degree. All of this is great. And I was thinking about what comment you made about the cultural, social, and economic advantages or disadvantages that many of these students have in navigating these higher education. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about what that looks like. I suspect it has to do with entering into, if you will, more middle-class, white, and I would say probably heteronormative, all the kinds of things that students face as they're transitioning from high school into college. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what those challenges look like. Yeah, sure, Omar. I mean, they're they're different for different populations, as you know, and they're they're even different sort of across individual students. What the data say is that, you know, I think about this because of my biological training. I think about this as a kind of, so evolutionary theorists will talk about a trait as being canalized, meaning it's in a canal and it, it takes a huge perturbation to move that trait out of that canal and force it to change. So that can be selection pressure or changes in other kinds of changes in the in the system. There are students for whom college completion is essentially canalized the day they're born. Their parents have 529 plans that give them tax advantages to save, to pay for tuition and fees and housing and, and that kind of thing. And then there are students for whom college completion or even college attendance is anything but canalized. And if they get to college, it can sometimes just take the slightest nudge to knock them into a different trajectory that will cause them not to complete. And one of the things I'm worried about with the current pandemic is that you know a lot of students don't enjoy the fully online learning environment. They miss the structure they had when they were regularly seeing their peers and their instructors. And I think you know we're hearing from students that they're really struggling to find motivation and to keep their attention on the work. And for a lot of students for whom college completion wasn't already a foregone conclusion, I'm worried that this sort of insult to their pathway is sort of a nudge too much and we are going to have to work very hard to keep them on the pathway to completion. So Andrew, you say we are going to have to work very hard, and that's obviously something that all of us are thinking about right now, something I'm thinking about as a professor, as a teacher. What are your insights as to how we can accomplish that? And what are the strategies that we as faculty can be applying that could be helpful to prevent people from being pushed out of the system as a result of this trauma? 
That's a great question. I wish I had something that I could claim to be insightful or to, to be an insight. What I have found works the best is to give students the appearance that you really care about them. And the best way to give them that appearance is to really care about them. Students are like people, which is a standard joke of mine. They respond to exactly the kinds of things that everybody else responds to. They want to think we care about them. They want us to be in touch with them and communication with them about what our expectations are. They need a lot of structure during this transition. I'm not teaching right now, so I'm maybe at a, even at a disadvantage answering this question compared to the both of you, Nadja and Omar, but I'm getting the emails from students and parents who are saying, you know, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't heard from my instructor in a week, that kind of thing. So in addition to being overly communicative, if that's possible at a time like this, I think we'll do two things. You know, a lot of what has happened in the academy over the past, say, 15 years to try to do right by populations of students who don't do as well as some other populations is to try to ad address their deficits. So, you know, put them in remedial courses, that kind of thing. I've never been a fan of that approach for all kinds of reasons. The most important one is we know empirically it doesn't work. But the bigger reason is that that approach isn't inclusive. What I would like to see as a response, and we are doing this here at, at UNCG, what I like to see as a response to this challenge and others is that we modify our structures in such a way it makes it easier for students to succeed. So we put together the provost and the several committees of the faculty senate and I and others, something that we have been calling the academic relief package. And it's a set of policy changes that give students a lot more control and flexibility over what their short-term academic futures look like so that we can put the decisions in their hands. So rather than saying, look, you are already enrolled and you're enrolled and it just is what it is, we have given them options to do things like opt for satisfactory, unsatisfactory grading or we've changed the rules about when they can withdraw and from how many courses and how much time they have to do that. Because we're respecting the fact that they know best about how well they can transition to a fully online environment and endure the situation they find themselves in. We know that a lot of students are in really not great learning environments. Some of them are in toxic family situations and really struggling to study. So Anadja, I'm not sure I answered your question, but if I just try to come around to a summary, one, do our best to make sure they know we care about them, demonstrate that care and concern, and second, change the structures everywhere possible, not to reduce rigor, but to give students more control over their options. It's super helpful what you're saying. I think the combination of the structures being there to support our students succeeding, as opposed to being a, an additional barrier, in combination with demonstrated care and you, you use the phrasing of giving the appearance, which I think some people might think that there's something inauthentic about that or what have you. But I think that part of how I understand what you're saying, and I experience you with students to the extent that I've experienced you with students, is that you want to be able to demonstrate to them in ways that they can receive that they're being attended to, that they're being cared for. And, I, and you are an award-winning teacher, so I, your time in the classroom clearly has refined your skills. And you probably went through a process like all of us in terms of learning what to do, learning what not to do, fumbling around. Oh yeah, I was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, you can tell them that you care 
So I'll, I'll tell a story about myself. I taught a freshman seminar in the fall and I was knocking myself out to tell my students how much I cared about them, but traveling all the time because I had to be other places, you know, virtually every week for a month in November. And they weren't buying it. I'm telling them how much I care about them, but then I'm gone, right? So there's an opposite kind of problem too, which is you can care a lot, but not give the appearance of caring. So yeah, you got to do both. You got to do both. That's right. It's super interesting. And I think that that's true of not just our students, but each other as colleagues or, you know, among friends, among family, that you have to figure out ways that people can understand or receive that you are caring about them because people express themselves very differently and receive differently. So it's partly, I, I like your scientific approach to structures and processes and your interpersonal way of being. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm so, I'm, I can't tell you how happy I am. I know that we are to have you here at UNCG at the time that you came and I thought that maybe what we could do, Nadja, is maybe shift and, uh, or continue and bring our another guest into the conversation. Yes, absolutely. So I would love to introduce our other guest. And just for one second before we do that, I was just going to make a quick comment, which is that I'm thinking how the current situation has really intensified the need to do these things in terms of creating structures that are supportive of our students and finding ways to stay in communication and show that we care about them. But it's not like this is a new need. It's like a heightened need, right? So in some ways, maybe this situation actually is an opportunity for us to learn how to do those things even better because they've become even more important. Would you say that might be true? Exactly. I think it's definitely true. Yeah. actually going to hear from one of our students now. So we'll see what he thinks about our evaluations, our conversations among faculty about how to best support our students. Let's get a student perspective on that. So James Stevens is going to join us. He's pursuing full university honors in biology at UNCG, completing his second year in the honors college. He serves as an honors ambassador and a McNair scholar with plans of enrolling in a dual MD-PhD program. James is president of the Native American Student Association of Halawa Saponi descent and has been able to advocate for and introduce university developments for inclusive and cooperative practices, most notably serving as a lead researcher on the Indigenous Pedagogy Project being offered through the Teaching Initiatives Office. Also, I'll mention that James, like me, was homeschooled, so we have some interesting overlaps in our interest in science and our sort of atypical backgrounds. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. So James, do you have any comments or thoughts to share based on you're listening to the conversation we've been having so far, either questions for Andrew or comments yourself about the student experience, either in general or specifically at this time? Yeah, absolutely. As I was listening to you guys talk, something that stood out to me, and I want to say thank you, Dr. Hamilton, and also to Dr. Dana Dunn, the provost of the institution, for introducing the satisfactory, unsatisfactory option that is going to be in place. I know a lot of students felt a lot of relief from that. And thinking about that and other things we've been talking about here, what other ways, and I'll open this up to Dr. Check and Dr. Ali, too, as educators at the institution, are faculty members and our educators and staff thinking about ways to be accommodating to students in this time and sort of adapt to our new learning environment 
something we were talking about earlier with Dr. Lois Holtzman, who is our visiting fellow of Vygotsky and Pedagogy, is how we transform our new environment that we're finding ourselves in, and also how uh, you know past environment has been upheld as something that we should be pursuing and trying to work back to, but was not actually as great as some have made it out to be. So then also, what are educators thinking about in terms of moving past this experience and moving forward how to introduce these inclusive and accommodating practices across the board, whether or not we're in a crisis situation. I would love to hear from Dr. Hamilton on this one. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, appreciate the question. The, I think there was a couple things going on there. One was about inclusion. So let me say this about that. Funny, uh, Omar and I were having this conversation a couple of days ago, and I was saying that I view high failure rates in introductory courses as a as an inclusion challenge, and I, they're not usually talked about like that. But in a lot of cases, what's going on is that the curricula are not sufficiently inclusive. By that, I mean we haven't paid enough attention to the facts on on the ground about what students come in knowing and about what they want from the experience. Here's a concrete case. In lots of colleges and universities across the country, math completion rates are terrible and those math completion rates are highly predictive in some majors and, and in some cases in general of retention for the first year and then graduation over a four or five or six year period. So, you know, we, if we have rates of failing or dropping those courses that are 40, 50, 60% and we know that those are predictive of that nudge students have to endure that knocks them off the pathway to graduation. Why haven't we fixed it? We're fixing it here. We've been working very hard on this this year and seeing really good results so far. But really what's happening at the heart of that challenge is that there are these massive disconnects between how school districts and states view college and career readiness and how colleges and universities view preparation to do lower division work in lots of subjects. So we have to close that gap and instead of holding students responsible for something they couldn't have predicted. That's what I mean when I I say that the, the curricula have to be inclusive. Again, it doesn't mean we lower the rigor. It means we find a way to get students over the hurdle and on their ways. They, I mean, students, by the time they're sophomores, need to be experienced scholars. They need to have study skills. They need to be ready to take on whatever comes their way in a competent, confident manner. And if we haven't set them up for success in their first year, it's hard to see how that will go. Second question James asked is about what faculty are doing to help students through this challenge. And the answer is there's not one thing, it's all kinds of things. I'm hearing every day some new trick somebody's dreamed up. The most recent one I saw was a faculty member in psychology was demonstrating the Pavlov effect with her dog on camera, which is pretty cool. What I've been saying to anyone who will listen is that we have to be flexible and forgiving of each other. That's faculty and students both. Students, I hope, will remember or at least be cognizant of the fact that faculty have had their lives interrupted too. A lot of them have children at home and they're trying to work uh, with, with kids there. And that's hard to do, especially if they're young kids. I have a, somebody who uh, on my team who has a, uh, an angsty teenager that I'm calling the quarantine, who is making life a little bit difficult. Oh, I have a quarantine too. You have a quarantine. Yeah. So like these are, you know, it's, it's, these are hard times. And a lot of faculty are not are not really at home in the fully online environment, you know, either. So flexible and forgiving, but uh, we're hearing 
thinking of faculty members who are delivering. There's a faculty member in music, Annie Jang, who's great. She collected keyboards from all over town and delivered them to students that didn't have keyboards where they were living so they could complete a piano course. And they're just stories like this from all over campus of faculty going the extra mile to make sure that students have what they need. And by the way, not just faculty, I should point out, I'm proud of our colleagues and peers all over campus. Here's an example. ITS has been just terrific. I mean, there are no cases that we've heard of where a student didn't have a functioning laptop or didn't have sufficient internet access. The problem wasn't addressed right away. So they're loaning computers left and right, uh, and they've made some deals with internet service providers so students can have better service so they could watch videos and do the things they needed to do. That's very impressive given that we have, you know, 20,000 students on our campus. Very impressive. Just to follow up on that point, I know there's somebody listening right now that says, wait a minute, I don't have a computer and nobody reached out to me. And that's probably true. And this goes right to the heart of where this conversation started. Students who know how to advocate for themselves probably got what they needed. Mm -hmm. Students who don't know to ask or are afraid to do so because they are at a cultural distance from the institution or its personnel, they probably aren't getting what they need and we don't know who they are. So students, if you're listening and you don't have what you need, send me an email. It's ugdean at uncg.edu and we will get you what you need. UG Dean, you got that. So one of the things that you had mentioned is the issue of study skills. And I was thinking about one of the many things that I really respect and, and love about James is his ability to in some ways build with others. Uh, so he's a, obviously a student leader here as president of the Native American Student Association and an honors ambassador. But he's especially skilled among our students, I think, in learning how to organize environments among other students, but in the classroom and other places where people's voices can be heard, where people feel affirmed, where people can maybe grow and and develop. And I think that that is kind of the kinds of skills that he's been able to develop for probably many different reasons. And perhaps some of it is personality. I don't know. It's maybe a combination is essential for navigating these sort of challenging times. And to go to your point, Andrew, about the students that know how to advocate are probably the ones that got the laptops, but there are many others who didn't. So I was wondering, James, if you could maybe give us some advice or give some specifically students, but I think all of us, we can all benefit from your words as well, is how do you think about in some ways creating uh, new possibilities, creating new opportunities? Because I see you as somebody who can do that very well. And maybe you could just offer a little bit of direction, ways of thinking about how to navigate these particularly challenging times. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ali, for that. (laughs) Uh, I really appreciate how much you recognize that in me and the opportunity that I have at the institution has been phenomenal. So thank you. In terms of how do we move forward and how do we how do we work in this time? I think I touched on it a little bit in my question, but I think we really need to work at transforming our space and now our digital space and how we are engaging with people. Uh, I know for myself, I thrive when I'm able to be in discourse with peers and also just conversation generally when I'm able to have social interaction. And so this time has been especially challenging for me as somebody who really gets rejuvenated from that and finds motivation to keep going from that. 
So I think we need to be intentional about how we're using our time and also how we're using the technology that's available to us. And I think a lot of it has yet to be revealed, but there are probably ways that we can innovate and do things that will, and of course, there's not that much time left in the semester. So uh, hopefully this period that we're in doesn't extend into the fall semester. But if it does, I think that would be a great time for thinkers and innovators to start capitalizing on the opportunity that there is for um, developmental change. And I think that, you know, to go back to Dr. Hamilton's question or, or comment about the creativity, that in some ways, the technology that we're now having to use has also created some new creative possibilities. Because I was struck by one thing you had mentioned, Dr. Holtzman, earlier in your comments, James. One of the things that she she sort of raised in this call was that the demand or the call or the directive, I should say, of social distancing is maybe not quite so accurate. We're talking about physical distancing, but as we're seeing, many people are using the technology now to get closer. So there's sort of, I don't know what the word is, but a countervailing things at play forces, which is that there's a physical distancing that we have to prescribe to and sort of adhere to. But there's also ways in which I'm experiencing people using sort of their creativity to become closer. And Zoom has now become the thing that many, many of us do. But I was thinking that there are new possibilities in the situation that we're in. I think that what you're saying is that, James, is that as I hear you saying, is that there are some maybe some best practices that might come out of this. And I know that, you know, Andrew is extremely uh, attentive to best practices in terms of student success. I was wondering maybe if both of you have any final thoughts before we wrap up the, this show. I will leave it to James. The students should speak first. Yeah, um, I think something I've been wanting to mention too in this conversation that I haven't yet is I think, and maybe I touched on it in my first question, but this really has, as Dr. Hamilton was saying, shown us the ways that our education system is already falling short. And it has revealed opportunities for growth that have already existed since time immemorial within our institutions. And so I think for educators listening, that this is a time for you to really dig into best practices, like Dr. Ali was saying, and think about If you are somebody who teaches a highly rigorous course that doesn't have, you know, 80-90% success rate, maybe think about how you are delivering that course and whether or not you are being inclusive or objective. And something I talk about a lot in my work around Indigenous pedagogy is how we can't be objective. We're all subjective. We all have life experiences that inform the work we do. And whether or not you are including everybody who's in the room is what it really boils down to. So yeah, I think take this opportunity to grow and develop, or if you already are, hone those practices that will serve students in the long run. And I'm going to agree with James. This is a time for hard work, uh, but also a time for optimism and a time for us to examine what we're doing. I mean, for me, for a long time, I've, I've wanted to deliver for, especially for students from disadvantaged backgrounds of various kinds, on the fullest promise for American public higher education and what it can mean uh, to transform a life and transform a family and transform a community. One of my heroes is a guy called Justin Smith Morrill, who 
who's responsible as much as anybody for there being public higher education in the United States. He established the land grant system as an act of Congress. He wrote the bill during the Lincoln administration, which is sort of amazing forethought. He he said in one of those pieces of legislation that he wrote that that system should support the sons of toil. And I love that line. Uh, and of course, who the sons and daughters of toil are have changed a lot since the Lincoln administration. So when I'm talking about structural change and demonstrations of care, what I'm saying is we have to stare right at the challenges, structural challenges, curricular challenges, learning challenges, other kinds of challenges that our students bring against the backdrop of how we're structured for them and do our best to be student ready so that all kinds of students who are willing to work hard and who are academically interested in, and we're trying to cultivate intellectual life have a real opportunity to do that. James, thank you so much for that call to action. I love what you just said. And I wanted to build on it by saying that I think really important part of this conversation is that when we include voices such as your own that might be underrepresented in academia, it benefits all of us. So to the extent that we're coming up with ways to be more inclusive, that's not just something that we're doing to benefit the people who have been underrepresented in academia in the past. It's something that actually enhances the rigor in everything that we do and also allows us to be more creative and move in different directions that we wouldn't be able to move in otherwise. So it's really critical for our collective development and enhanced ability to innovate. So I just, I really am grateful to you and to Andrew for the effort that you're putting into trying to make that a possibility for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you both for being on the Yes And Cafe. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including our production team, Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson.